The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. My name is Janie Castellanos. Um, me and my husband, Ken, have been attending Story City for a little over a year now. So I'm going to read today's scripture. If you guys can please stand, we'll be in Romans 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is good pleasing, and perfect will of God. And I'm going to read it in Español. Por lo tanto, hermanos en la fe, les ruego que tomen en cuenta la gran bondad de Dios, así que ofrezcan todo su ser como un sacrificio vivo y agradable a Dios. Esa es la verdadera adoración que Él merece. No vivan como el, la gente de este mundo. Al contrario, Cambien de manera de pensar y así cambiará su manera de vivir. Entonces podrán comprobar cuál es la voluntad de Dios y que esta es buena, agradable y perfecta. Esta es la palabra de Dios. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning again. Welcome. Uh, for those of you who missed the first part, my name is Jared. I have the privilege and honor of being one of your pastors here. We are excited you're with us this morning. Uh, welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Welcome for those of you who are hanging out with us for the first time. We're excited that you are here. As a little bit of a background, we've been learning together how God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have uh, been speaking to, interacting with, and empowering humanity to accomplish God's mission in and through his people in the places he's called them to. When Jesus returned to heaven, uh, he said that he was, we were going to continue the work that he started. We're to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so our job is to reflect who Jesus is and how he loves. We're to bring glory to the Father and to help the rest of the family carry out his mission as well. Now, before we go any farther, I actually have a favor to ask of you. Is that okay? Can I ask you guys a favor this morning? Good, because I'm going to ask anyway. So <clears throat> here's where we're at. With all of these changes that have been happening at Story City, we have been working really hard again based on who we believe God has called us to be, based on the surveys, based on all the questionnaires, based on the conversations, based on getting to know our community over this last year, we are working hard to restructure and change who we are so that we can meet those needs and steward well the people, time, resources, finances, everything that God has given us here in this location. And to do that means we've had to change some of the structure of how we even staff and one of the things we've identified is that we need a director of family ministry, somebody who's going to help us raise up and pour into all the ministries that fall underneath that. And so we've identified somebody, his name is Justin, he and his wife Kimmy will be coming up from Oceanside uh, in June, we're excited about that. But we're also not that big of a church where we don't have a ton of money, and so one of the things we do have, God has blessed us with, is housing on this property. You may not have known that. But several of our staff live in housing here. We have a two-bedroom apartment, a three-bedroom house, and a studio. And, uh, and so we have those available for our staff, and that constitutes a, a portion, uh, a large portion usually, of the pay that we give them. With Justin coming up, we have a three-bedroom that, uh, that is in pretty sad shape. 
to be honest with you. Uh, it, it's not horrible. It used to look a lot worse, but it isn't great. If you look, there's like, the ceiling looks like it's got flooring on it. Uh, the bathtub looks like you can get rabies from it. Um, there's three different types of flooring and four different levels, which makes no sense to me. Um, but anyway, what we've done is we've opened it up. And so this building right next to us, you'll see is the kids annex. And believe it or not, the building next to that is ours. It's, it's kind of a tan brown building. If you walk out the front sidewalk, you go to the, the second building down past this one. There's a black gate you'll walk, and the door has been propped open. We'd invite you to go walk in and look, because here's the favor we're asking. They will be here in the beginning of June, and we would really like to get that housing uh, up to a place where it doesn't feel like they're sacrificing to live here. When you live, there's two things. One is, is uh, being a pastor means that there is uh, uh, just not time off sometimes. It's, it's almost a 24-hour job, right? Because people's needs are 24 hours. And the reality is, is that it's almost worse when you live on campus because everybody assumes you're always on campus, meaning you're always working. And so what we're trying to do is create spaces one by one, where each of those housing units is something that is sort of an oasis, something that feels like you can shut the door and have some break from the work that you're doing, even though you live here. Does that make sense? It needs to be a true benefit. So what I would ask you to do is walk through that building, and if you feel like that is a true benefit, that it does feel like an oasis, then don't bother doing anything. If you feel like there's something we can do, and you may be able to, uh, to, to help in different ways, if you are a, somebody that does flooring, and you have a friend that does flooring, you have somebody that can paint or tear down the, the 70s plywood walls and help put up sheetrock, uh, do electrical, or you just want to contribute financially to that above and beyond our, our normal ties and offerings, we're asking for help because we need it. We just can't afford to go and remake that, and we know that we can't you know, uh, make it all... Uh, marble and tile and you know we can't go overboard but we certainly can do something to make it appropriate by the beginning of June when they get there so would you do me a favor and and just kind of walk through that place before you leave today pray about what God would have you do specifically to help us above and beyond is that okay you guys got it okay cool all right here at Story City, we are committed to being a church of prayer, and uh, that is really important to us, and to that end, we've been starting off each sermon with a time of pastoral prayer, and so uh, just to, I don't know about you guys, but it, <laughs> this morning, uh, it was a struggle bus morning, you know what I mean? Like, all of us were really struggling to even get the words out of our mouth, it was just one of those mornings. I'm sure you guys have experienced those, that's just kind of been the trend for today, so, so part of this is just a, a great way to calm my heart, and hopefully our hearts, and enter us into what God has for us this morning. By the way, I'm using the book Five Things to Pray for Your City by Nicholas and Thorne today, and my prayer today is revolving around our church's interaction with our city around us. Join me in prayer. Father God, it's easy to get caught up in the busyness of life. It's easy to get caught up in doing things and being busy both in our, Lord, just kind of the lives we see as our regular lives and the lives we see as our spiritual lives. It's easy to get caught up in having to take care of all the things that are on our shoulders, the, the things that we need to do for family, the things we need to do for self, the things we need to do for others. It, it can just be overwhelming. And so I pray that you would help us to learn how to be a people who work out of our rest in you. Father, I pray that you would teach us how to Sabbath, to create space to be still and listen to your word, to talk and listen to you both corporately and individual, that we would create time just to be with you and not try and do stuff for you. 
I pray for work-life balance, that we would be a hardworking people who represent you well in the way that we work and the product that we put out. But that we would balance that well by loving our family and our friends fully and completely and be present in our conversations and time with them. Father, I pray that our leisure time, our playtime would be yours. That we would live in the understanding that all of our time, our work, our rest, our leisure is all yours. That we wouldn't compartmentalize the spiritual from the secular, but that our lives would point to you in everything we do. In the name of Jesus, amen. As we wind down our Centered series, we come to this fundamental concept in how we love God and others. It's one of my favorite things to talk about, but I personally believe it's also one of the most misunderstood areas of serving and loving God, and it's the area of worship. Now, worship is, again, I think one of the most misunderstood and, and underappreciated uh, areas of, of, uh, of Christian life for those of us who are learning to apprentice Jesus. And so um, let's, we're going to go back to our scripture for today. But as usual, Paul uh, writes uh, so much deep stuff in short areas. And then if you haven't read Paul a lot, especially in Romans, we have what's called parenthetical thought where he, he chases down a bunch of rabbit trails and it's like three or four chapters later where he comes back to what he was saying. And so you kind of have to follow Paul's like ADD. It's, it's everywhere, Right. And so let's go back and remind ourselves of the scripture for today. It's Romans chapter 12, 1 to 2, as Janie read. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Okay, anytime we see the word therefore in scripture, it tells us that this portion of scripture is related to what just came before it. That it's connected, that we have to understand what's being said because the response we're about to get is a result of what was said before that. So anytime you see the word therefore, it's really important to us to know what the context is. But, but let's back up even a little farther than that and try and understand what Paul is doing in the book of Romans itself. And I think it's helpful for us to kind of get that. Now, scholars believe that Paul wrote this while in Corinth. He was hanging out with the people in Corinth. And he was writing before he visited Jerusalem uh, and then made his way to Rome. And his ultimate intent was to go to Spain. We don't know if he ever made it to Spain or not. Uh, We believe that he was trying to make uh, Rome his uh, kind of home base. And then he was going to be moving on. But he knew that going to Jerusalem was going to be an issue because there was a massive conflict going on in the church at the time. And the question for the church was, how Jewish does the church need to be? How Jewish does the church need to be? Now, lest we forget, despite all the pictures that show Jesus is Swedish, <laughs> that Jesus was Jewish, right? Contrary to all the art, Jesus was Jewish. And so uh, N.T. Wright makes the argument that, that, uh, that Paul and the early church weren't actually trying to establish a new religion. They didn't see Jesus as establishing a new religion. They saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the Messiah and the perfect, fulfilled expression of the Jewish faith. And so you have all of these issues that are going on with, well, how Jewish do we need to be? If this is a continuation of the faith, this is the coming Messiah that was promised, then do we need to continue to follow the law? Now, Paul teaches that Jesus fulfilled the law. We talk about that. What do we mean? Jesus said the law will not pass away. But Jesus fills, there's three laws. Jesus fills the ceremonial law and he fills the sacrificial law. But he doesn't fulfill, he, he embodies the moral law. 
okay? Meaning, that still stands. Love God, don't murder. Things, uh, things like that. Uh, um, don't cheat on your husband or wife. Those are things that are moral law. Those stand, and they're accompanied inside who Jesus is. But the laws about what animals were clean or unclean, the ones you could, you could or couldn't eat, how you washed your hands, those things didn't matter anymore, and they still don't, or we would still be sacrificing animals today, which would make this room look very different. And so those who understood Jesus as the fulfillment of the laws were trying to figure out what it meant to live in that freedom because that was a whole new thing for them. And they, many of them didn't even grow up under Jewish laws. And so they're going, well, okay, this is just how we live. But the Jews are struggling going, no, there is no, there is no salvation apart from the law. And so we want to make sure that you're fully following it. And this battle was raging in the church. It's raging. So this is ultimately what Paul is trying to address in the book of Romans. In his commentary on Romans, Martin Luther talks about how uh, chapter 12 of Romans builds on Paul's foundation that he's been laying for the first few chapters where he's saying there is no salvation apart from grace. It's not by works or how hard you follow the law or how well you follow the law. It's not that. It is literally grace that saves us. And so he's expressing that. And Paul gets this place where chapter 12 then gets into, well, then how do we live in this? If the truth is that we're not following the law anymore, and now you see why Paul has been arguing that for 12 chapters, then how is it that he calls apprentices of Jesus to live? We see that in verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And then he says, this is your true worship. Now, first, that word for bodies is the word soma. Soma. And it means more than just your body. It means more than just your mind. It's all the things that make you, you. It's the embodiment of who you are. And so Paul says, look, all that makes you, you needs to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. He says, now listen, you you can trust the mercy of God. You're not going to get this right. It's okay. Don't worry about it. It's not about works. And because you're not going to get this right, God offers you his mercy. So in light of this mercy, go ahead and offer yourselves as living sacrifice. But what is a living sacrifice then? The word that Paul uses here is tusia, which is... Not an actual sacrifice, it's metaphorical, but it means a sacrifice of service, of obedience, and of praise offered to God, and obligation all tied together. So here's what's interesting. It's not just, um, there's this sense of we must do it, we owe this to God. But there's also this sense of, I want to do this because I'm compelled to by by understanding the grace and the love that God has shown me. They're, They're mixed together, you can't separate them. There's this, we definitely owe God. But this living sacrifice, presenting ourselves in this way, is also out of a, a heart motivation that goes, I want to. I love you. Now, here is something that's interesting in this, is that the fact that this sacrifice is living helps us see that it's not just a one-time thing. It's a continual thing, which is really interesting. Now, now this is stunning imagery here. Because what does a sacrifice do to make itself holy? Nothing. It lays there and dies. In fact, it's not even really an official real sacrifice unless God accepts it. And so the sacrifice has nothing to do with being holy. The sacrifice is just available and God is the one that actually makes it holy through the process. This is a really fascinating imagery that that Paul is giving us. And so giving of ourselves, body, mind, and soul, as a continual sacrifice is pleasing to God 
And Paul goes on to say that that continual sacrifice is what your true worship actually is. Okay, I have one more word that I want to define for you. I know some of you already feel like this is more school than you want, so hang in there. It's going to be fine. Um, But the last word I want to take particular note of here is the word true, which comes from the word lahikos, lahikos. John Stott writes that this word in front of worship means it is the worship offered by mind and heart, spiritual as opposed to ceremonial, an act of intelligent worship in which our minds are fully engaged. It's not to be offered in the temple courts or in the church building, but rather in the home or in the marketplace. If this is true, this word that Paul uses, that this is about engaging our heart and our mind, this is stunning. Because this means that we could literally come to church, raise our hands, sing some songs, and not have actually worshipped at all. This means that we could come in, raise our hands, sing worship, sing praise, sing adoration, and not have actually worshipped at all. If you're taking notes today, this is the first example, our first observation for the day. Uh, as we're getting to that, one of the things I would say is that there are some people who would define worship as reverential response to God, but I, I actually disagree with that. I don't think as that stands, that's a comprehensive definition of what worship is, that it's, it's, it's not just a reverential response to God. So here's what I'm saying. True worship is not the action, but the heart Behind the action. True worship is not the action, but the heart behind the, exact, behind the action. Let me give you a practical example. Let's say that you're on the street corner right out here in front of the church. And you see an elderly woman who is struggling to cross the street. There's some cars coming and she looks like she's struggling. And so you think, oh my gosh, I hope she's going to be okay. I I, want to help out. And so you rush over and you go, can I help you? And she says, yes, please. Would you please help me? And you help her across the street. She gets to the other side. You're the hero. That's awesome. Great job. You did it, right? And she's very grateful. You did it because your heart was, man, I just, I care for her. This is a woman who needs help. Now I'm on the street corner over there and I see the same woman and I think, oh my gosh, People are looking at me, and if I don't do this, what kind of pastor does that make me look like? I had better go help her, or else these people are going to think that I'm a pretty jacked up pastor. And so I walk over, and I go help her. I ask, can, you, can I help you? She says, yes. I help her across the street. She makes it safe. Yeah, I'm the hero. That's great. Now, here is the issue. On the outside, both to her and those people watching, the action looks exactly the same. But on the inside, only one of those heart arguments, those heart uh, motivations is good. In one case, the motivation is to care and to love and protect somebody. In the other, it is how I am seen and how I am perceived by other people. Only one of those is right. Obviously, it's me. The Bible says that God is most concerned with the attitude and motivations of our heart, not our outward actions. In 1 Samuel 16 to 7, 16 verse 
7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees what? The heart. And Proverbs 16, 2, all a person's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the motives. The Lord actually knows what our motives are even when we lie to ourselves. And the truth is that we lie to ourselves all the time about why we're doing stuff because we don't want to see, be seen as bad even to ourselves. And so God knows exactly why, the reasons we do what we do. And Paul is saying, look, the argument isn't what law you follow or what you don't follow, what animals you eat or you don't eat. The issue is the heart behind everything. Jesus is concerned with having all of our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, our time. Our energy, our effort, our ability, everything we are all the time as a continual sacrifice to God. All the time, constant. Why is this so hard for us? I believe it's this hard because we have come to a place where we believe that there is a sacred, secular divide. In his book, Prayer, A.W. Tozer writes this. One of the greatest hindrances to internal peace the Christian encounters is the common habit of dividing our lives into two areas, the sacred and the secular. As these areas are conceived to exist apart from each other and to be morally and spiritually incompatible, and as we're compelled by the necessities of living to always be crossing back and forth from the one to the other, our inner lives tend to break up so that we live a divided instead of a unified life. Our trouble springs from the fact that we who follow Christ inhabit at once two worlds, the spiritual and the natural. As children of Adam, we live our lives on earth subject to the limitations of the flesh and the weaknesses and ills to which human nature is heir. Merely to live among men requires us years of hard toil and much care and attention to the things of this world. In sharp contrast to this is our life in the spirit. There we enjoy another and a higher kind of life. We are children of God. We possess heavenly status and enjoy intimate fellowship with Christ. This tends to divide our, life, our total life into two departments. We come unconsciously to recognize two sets of actions. The first are performed with a feeling of satisfaction and a firm assurance that these actions are pleasing to God. These are the sacred acts and they are usually thought to be things like prayer and Bible reading, hymn singing, church attendance, and such other acts as spring directly from faith. They may be known by the fact that they have no direct relation to this world and would have no meaning whatsoever, whatever, except as faith allows us another world. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, 2 Corinthians 5.1. Over against these sacred acts are the secular ones. They include all the ordinary activities of life we share with the sons and daughters of Adam, eating, sleeping, working, looking after the needs of the body, and performing our dull and prosaic duties here on earth. These we often do reluctantly with many misgivings, often apologizing to God for what we consider a waste of our time and strength. The upshot of this is that we are uneasy most of the time. We go about our common tasks with a feeling of deep frustration, telling ourselves pensively that there, there's a better day coming when we shall slough off this earthly shell and be bothered no more with the affairs of this world. This is the old sacred secular antithesis. Most Christians are caught in its trap. They cannot get a satisfactory adjustment between the claims of the two worlds. They try to walk the tightrope between two kingdoms. They find no peace in either. Their strength is reduced, their outlook confused, and their joy taken away from them. And I believe this state of affairs to be wholly unnecessary. We have gotten ourselves in the horns of a dilemma, true enough, but the dilemma is not real. 
It's the creature of misunderstanding. The sacred secular antithesis has no foundation in the New Testament. Without a doubt, a more perfect understanding of Christian truth would deliver us from it. Now, what Tozer is saying here is I, I believe exactly what Paul is trying to get us to see in Romans 12, 1 and 2. That God wants all of our time and, and, and the time, all of us, and the time and the sacrifice of giving all of ourselves to God is what true worship is. And so here's how I would define worship. If you're taking notes today, this is our second observation. Worship is a right heart attitude leading to any action that brings glory to God. Worship is a right heart attitude leading to any action that brings glory to God. So any right heart attitude is actually worship, of worship will, will lead to action. It has to. Right heart attitudes of worship have to be expressed outside. And so all true worship starts in an internally and is expressed externally. All true worship starts internally and is expressed externally. What does this look like outward? What is this supposed to look like? Some of us have been taught that worship really is just singing to God on a Sunday morning. But it's so much more than that. In the Lexham Wordbook, Macaulay writes, the forms of worship are diverse. Worship can take place in the context of confession, lament, praise, thanksgiving, and adoration. What is confession? Confession is a form of worship recognizing that people are sinners who stand in need of God's grace. What is lament? Lament is a type of worship that recognizes the distance between the world as we experience it and the world as it should be given God's goodness, power, and love. It's a request for God to complete his project of making all things new now. Praise of God can be in response to his character or his saving acts. Thanksgiving functions as a means of showing gratitude for what God has done. Adoration involves contemplating and lauding God for who he is. And so worship can manifest itself. If it's all those things, it can manifest itself in so many different ways. It can be song. It can be dance. It can be ritual. It can be preaching. It can be prayer. All of these things can and should be worshiped to our living God. The people of Israel sang and played instruments. King David danced before the Lord. I know, we're Southern Baptists. You guys are all freaking out. But it's in Scripture. It's there. Israelites had these series of festivals. You know what a festival is? It's a party. God, yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah. God wanted the Israelites to throw parties. And the focus of the party was to thank God and remember what God had done. We should be throwing parties for the purpose of thanking God for what he's done, but we should enjoy who God is. That's a part of what we're called to. That's worship. Excuse me. Physically, worship could involve bowing the knee, lying prostrate, lifting hands before God. The, the early church was the, the ideal picture of Christian worship. And you see that in Acts 2.42 where the, the church gathered to hear the apostles teaching, to fellowship together, to hang out together. We call that community. To break bread, which wasn't just communion. It was actually eating together. That was where they did their communion. Communion wasn't just a wafer and, a, and some juice. It was having a meal together and, and, and starting by going, God, we remember what you've done as we start this meal off. It included giving together, taking care of people's needs. It included singing, 
and the felt presence of the Holy Spirit. And so worship encompassed the entirety of one's life lived in obedience to God. This author writes, every act of obedience to Christ, no matter how mundane, when done to his glory, is an act of worship. I want you to think about this for a minute. Listen to this verse. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. What did he not list in there? I know. Uh, Super Bowl parties. Can't do Super Bowl parties for the glory of God. Uh, playing jiu-jitsu. Can't play jiu-jitsu for the glory of God. Uh, going to the gym. Didn't include that in there. How about going out uh, for drinks with friends? That's not in there. Maybe we should go back and look at one more word. The root of the word that Paul uses here for everything is the word pass. Pass. And it means everything. (laughs) That's what it means. It means everything. It means all. Like Macaulay said, every act of obedience to Christ, no matter how mundane, when done to his glory, is an act of worship. So let's go back and remind ourselves of today's scripture. Romans 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God. So why are we doing this? Because God is going to have mercy on us. He knows we're not going to get this right. He's with us. His mercy is enough for us. It's good. Because of that, he urges us. This word urge is like, I'm inviting you into. You must come in and hear this. This is important. To present your bodies, all of what makes you you, as a living sacrifice. Meaning giving all that you are to God every moment of the day. Not just only when you're at church, but when you're at work, when you're in conversations with your friends, when you're going out to eat, when you're watching TV, all of you is presenting yourself in those moments to God. When you lay down and go to sleep, when you raise up in the morning, whatever you're doing, every part of that is some act of worship. It should be. There isn't a sacred, secular divide. But then he goes on, and in verse 2 it says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Can you see the continuation of this thought in verse 2? Paul is laying out the case that we are to have right hearts, and right, those right hearts lead to right actions in all areas of our lives. There's no sacred, secular divide. And then in verse 2 he tells us this is how it's to come about, to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And so if you're taking notes today, this is the third and final observation for the day. We are transformed by the Spirit in the context of discipleship. We are transformed by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that actually transforms us. But it comes about in the context of discipleship. What do I mean by this? I mean that God continues to work in us to renew our minds, and he uses his people, he uses the church to bring that about in our lives. To help us to grow up in him. This is why Jesus gave us the command in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go therefore, so as you're going to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what does he say next? He says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's discipleship. And remember, I've got you. I'm with you forever. Jesus says in verse 20 that we're to teach others to live in the way that he's called us to, which is so often contrary to the way that culture around us calls us to live. In Ephesians 4, Paul says we are called to help each other grow more Christ-like. Verse 16 says, from him the whole body, talking about the church, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love. What does the church do? It does what? Builds itself up 
in love by the proper working of each individual part. Our job is to pour into each other, to help disciple each other, to help each other grow. It goes both ways, right? It's not just I'm telling you what to do. It's we are helping each other grow up in discipleship. That means we have to learn how to discern what God thinks is good and pleasing to him. So how do we do that here at Story City Church? We would say that we worship in services, we live in groups, we learn in studies, and we serve in teams. We worship in services, live in groups, learn in studies, and serve in teams. This is our discipleship structure. It's, it's not hard to see that if we try to take confession as an act of worship and we try to live that out here on Sunday morning, that would be really awkward for all of us. And it would take forever, right? Can you imagine? Like everybody in the room, all right, it's time for you to confess now. But you know what? The context of a DNA accountability group, that's a perfect place for confession. That's a perfect place for us to say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. I want you to know so I don't keep living like this. Inside of a missional community is a great place for us to talk through those things. We can practice lament in both the big gatherings and the small gatherings. We can practice praise, thanksgiving, adoration in those same places. By studying together, we can learn more about those contexts and and we get to practice living them out and learning to, to serve and lead others by serving in teams. And so we spend time getting to know, love, and serve Jesus by getting to know, love, and serve others. And this is both true worship and what the church is supposed to be about. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. God, you are incredible. You are so full of mercy and goodness and grace. I'm overwhelmed, Father, by how you've provided so many ways to worship you. And Lord, we confess that, that so often we sort of do our, our, our Christian thing in the times that we're doing Christian things and we don't much remember you in the other parts. Would you help us to live in a way where there's no sacred secular divide? where all of our life points to you, brings you honor and glory. Father, we know we can't do that well, and I thank you that shame does not come from you, that your spirit will convict us in the things that need to change, but that we can trust that your grace is enough for us. And so, Lord, we together stand in that grace, and we thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your grace. We praise you for the ability to rest in you. I pray that you continue to show us the way, Lord. We love you, we praise you in Jesus' name.